All right, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We've gotten through the uh, genealogies and the birth of the Lord, the baptism. The last thing that we left off on was that um, in the genealogies of Matthew were the great multitudes. We look at, um, let's go back to chapter 3. In verse 23, when Jesus went about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogue, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people, that his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were sick, all who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, uh, paralytics, and he healed them. In verse 25, great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from uh, Decapolis. Decapolis is another name for ten cities. Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And um, that's how we ended for talking about the multitudes that followed him. And, um, And yet when we get into... Um, the Beatitudes in five. The Beatitudes actually begin with five, six, and seven. And um, it would be great to take that all in one, but there's so much here that I'm pretty sure we're only going to make it um, maybe through five. But the idea of the multitudes um, and just how vast his fame had, had um, you know, completely changed the whole landscape, that everybody knew who Jesus was and they were coming as far away from Syria and the ten cities. So as you look at chapter 4, we're dealing with the beginning of his ministry. He's 30 years old. There are six prophecies in Matthew chapter 4. I sound like a broken record, but I'm going to make a point of it. Every time he speaks, or in this case the devil speaks, they're going to say the words, because it was written. And so there's, a, there's an order that uh, the Lord purposely says, this has to happen because it was foretold. And so again, the Bible is a book about prophecy. It puts... Um, it, it, it puts a, a good um, meat on your spiritual bones when you can back up the Bible with prophecy that has already taken place, more importantly, prophecy that's taking place right now. So what I want to point out here is as we look at chapter 4, we find that Jesus has just been baptized um, I made a point of verse 17 last week about the Trinity. In 17, you have the Father speaking from heaven. You have Jesus being baptized, and you have the Holy Spirit descending upon him. And so you have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil 
And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights and afterwards he was hungry. There's a whole study there. We have Moses being on top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. And um, we have 40 as a very significant number throughout the scriptures. But when he was at his weakest point, um, we read that the tempter came to him and he said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. And he's actually challenging the Lord at this time of his own deity, trying to put doubt in his mind that if you are the Son of God, then command these stones to become bread. Well, Satan knows he's the Son of God, and the Lord knows he's the Son of God, but he is weak at this point, and he is hungry. Um, In fasting, after about the third day, something strange happens. The first three days, all you can think about is food. If you say, I'm going to go on a fast, and uh, as soon as you say that, You become preoccupied with food (laughs) in your thinking, at least with me. But after the third or fourth day, a strange thing happens in that your appetite actually goes away. Um, It doesn't say anything about uh, the water here, but um, your appetite diminishes. And um, it doesn't return until after he was, the, the 40 days had come to an end. And so we read here, when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was hungry. It doesn't say he was hungry during that period of time, but all of a sudden it hits you or you die. And that being the case, um, he says, well, if you're God, then it should be no problem for you to take these stones and, and turn them into bread. And here is the first place where he points out It is written. And he is quoting scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 3. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Gang, I can't tell you how important what I just read is for, for life, for being stable, to have an understanding of what God's plan is. We have plans, we make plans, and all too often we forget that the Lord's got it all laid out already with his plans. Just flip back really quick to the first five books of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy would be the last of it. And when Jesus says, it is written, um, we find in 8.3, talking about manna, Deuteronomy 8, he said, he humbled you, He allowed you to hunger, and he fed you manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he goes out and talks about the miracles for the 40 years, their clothes didn't wear out, their shoes didn't wear out. But real life is uh, having a satisfied soul. Real contentment comes when we can read, and as we get into the Beatitudes tonight, um, talking about the nature and the soul of man. So the first 
temptation. Eve was tempted in the garden, and she failed. And as a result, uh, there's been an infection in mankind ever since, and it only has one cure, and that is um, Jesus dying on the cross. And one of the main reasons for the temptation here is to stop that event from happening by saying, you don't have to go to the cross. I'll give it all to you if you'll just get down and worship me. But this is the first temptation, and the the Lord's statement to it, I can't emphasize enough. Um, when we get to a, a little bit later and Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth, it says it was his custom. He had a custom that he was in the synagogue on a regular basis. Our custom, our priority, as we look at priorities in life, our first priority should be seeking first the kingdom of heaven. Good place for an amen. That should be our first priority. We live in a world that's doing everything it can to get us away from doing exactly that, seeking first the kingdom. What keeps us going true north is by doing what you're doing tonight. If you make that a priority, to see the importance Wednesday night, that's simply my custom. I'm going to be at the Wednesday night Bible study. Um, Saturday morning, my custom, men's prayer, unless I'm traveling. My custom, in church, every Sunday. That's my priority. Got to be careful of getting sidetracked here, but my my big beef that I got going on these days is that the uh, schools are hosting soccer games and sports on Sunday morning, putting parents in real difficult situations. Because here you got kids that are waiting for the game all week. I remember being that age and um, not thinking about books. I'm thinking about playing ball. And now they got these things taking place, and it really is putting pressure on, on families. So first temptation. Second temptation, the devil took him up into, a, into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Now the devil quotes scripture. For it is written... He shall give his angels charge concerning you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And the Lord's reply, it is also written. So Satan quotes scripture, but now the Lord puts the scripture in the context where it should be. It is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Um, turn with me here to Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12. I like the idea of making you turn, especially if you're new with the scriptures. If you go back and forth enough, you get to know where <laughs> things are supposed to be in your Bible. I have to have this Bible. They don't make them anymore. And uh, uh, so when I find one on, on, on eBay or whatever, I buy it. Because I've used this Bible, I've gone through four or five or six of them. Um, I know where something is supposed to be on a page. (laughs) And if I have somebody else's Bible, I can't find it. But I know right where this is supposed to be. This is Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12. For he has given his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. They shall bear you up in their hands, lest you dash your foot against a stone you shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent, you shall trample underfoot. 
Now, the interesting thing about this is when the temptation is all over with, we find in verse 11 that angels actually did come and minister to them. But there's a reason that the Lord is going through uh, these temptations, and I'll be getting to that in just a bit. But this is a prophecy. Satan quotes scripture. Satan quotes scripture at a lot of uh, churches today. Takes them out of context, twists them. And, um, and the only way to have a guard against that is to know your Bible so well to be able to say, that's not what that means. You're taking that out of context and applying it to something that it's, it, it, it shouldn't be. The third temptation, beginning in verse 8, is also a prophecy. Um, Again, the devil took him up an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This is Deuteronomy chapter 10, Verse 20, if you're taking notes, write that down. And um, we're just going through prophecies that are foretold in the Old Testament and they're being fulfilled uh, at the end of this 40-day period of time. And then in verse 11, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Um, I'd like... for you to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, actually. Let's pick it up in verse 14. Why the temptations? It says every temptation. So we read in verse 14 of chapter 4 of Hebrews, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So when it says every temptation, uh, there was every temptation that the Lord went through. Why? Well, we're told in Hebrews, so that he can identify. We can't say, well, you're God, you're, you're not going to struggle or be tempted in those things it would have been impossible for the Lord to yield to the temptation because he's holy. The Bible says he didn't come to um, kill the law, but to fulfill the law. And here, though, in order for him to you know, have empathy and sympathy, when you go through a temptation, he can identify with you. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. So he says in verse 16, let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's go back to uh, Matthew chapter 4. The devil at this point leaves him. When we read Luke's account of this, it adds to it. It doesn't mean he left him and he's gone and not going to hassle him anymore. It says he left him for until a more convenient time, and that's in in Luke's gospel. So the angels coming and ministering 
to him is um, the end of the um, the modern uh, modern uh, the temptation. Actually, years ago, when we visited Israel down by Jericho, they had a a tram that would take you up to what they called the Mount of Temptation. Um, at best, it's a B-site because all the Bible tells us is he was in the wilderness. Eve was in the garden. Jesus was in the wilderness. Well, as soon as you leave Jerusalem and you start, it's all downhill to Jericho, it's all wilderness, barren, and there's nothing there. So it could have been anywhere in this area, but it was a good tourist trap in Jericho, and they would take the tours up to the Mount of Temptation, and they would tell us that was um, where this event took place. All we know was in the wilderness, and that it, it was it was a forty day period of time. Now, after this, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to the Galilee, and leaving Nazareth. He came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Again, notice that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, And the people who sat in darkness saw a great light, and those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light had dawned. I'm actually going to have you turn to Isaiah, um, chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Isaiah is an easy book to find. It's the largest of the old, of the major prophets. 9, 1 and 2. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, And when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterwards more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death upon them a light has shined. So here's here's Isaiah. I think it's 700 years, if I remember right. Um, yeah, seven, yeah, 700 years before Jesus. He's saying that when he begins his ministry, we read in verses 12 through 16, he says it is written by Isaiah that he is going to go to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali in the Galilee region. And this is where the Lord begins his ministry. Matter of fact, when, <clears throat> when we visit the Galilee and we're on our bell, and I've, I've said this before from the pulpit, when you're on our bell, you're right below this uh, huge, beautiful mountain range overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Right beneath it is the ancient city of Magdal where Mary Magdalene came from. And I like to take my hand like this and hold it up and I have everybody to group do it. Just stand and hold their hand like that and tell them that from here, which would be around um, uh, the Mount of Beatitudes, over to here, which would be the land of the Gadarenes, they have that northern part of the Sea of, of Galilee. 
And that's where 60% of the Lord's ministry took place. And where did he begin? And what did he make his home base? Home base wasn't Nazareth. He wasn't welcome in Nazareth, as we'll see tonight. His home base was Capernaum. And uh, Capernaum is there to this day. There is a synagogue in Capernaum that's built upon another synagogue. And the one below it, the foundation, is at A-site. It would have been the same synagogue that Jesus would have been in. And that's where the Lord is going to call Peter and Andrew and James and John. So as we see the, the early part of the Lord's ministry, he's 30 years old. He's going there because Isaiah said 700 years earlier, that is where he's going to have begin his ministry. And verse 17, and from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, these were the first words of John the Baptist, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, um, to get his attention, he is going to do um, so many miracles in such a short period of time, the multitudes are going to form. But before he does, he is going to invest in 12 men. Here are the first four. Um, the guys in the Galilee had a reputation of being ruffians. Um, we know later that they had an accent because a little somebody called out Peter and said, I know you're, you're Galilee, and I can tell by that accent that you have there. And so we find in verse 18 now Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee. And I can't put this in the words. There's, there's, there's no experience like this, what I just read. To be able to walk, and what's strange about it, it, it is relatively unchanged. There are a couple of kibbutzes around the Sea of Galilee. There's a city of Tiberias. Um, you have the ancient city of Magdal. Currently, they're doing excavation work there. Um, they have the modern city of Mar- Magdal, but that's not on the Sea of Galilee. It's up on a hill. You have a kibbutz called Nafgenazar. That's right on the Sea of Galilee. But then you have to go all the way around to Capernaum, which is nothing but the ancient ruins of Capernaum, except the Catholic Church built a great big Catholic <laughs> spaceship, I call it. It looks like a spaceship. I'm not kidding you. It's completely round. It's got a glass floor. And they built it there because it, when you go up and look down, they say, that's where Peter lived. I purposely go over there and talk real loud because they're telling everybody, this is Peter's house. And so I go out of my way of speaking very loud, and I can say, one thing we can know for sure is that Peter is from Capernaum. The other thing we know for sure is that is not his house. It drives the Catholic priest crazy. How did it get there? Well, Constantine sent his mother to the Holy Land to find the holy sites. And um, she determined what was and what wasn't. So she was walking around Capernaum one day, and they said, what do you think? And basically, that's what it comes down to. Well, that could have been it right there, okay? So whatever they, when they do that, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem is supposed to be Calvary. So what do they do? They build this huge monstrosity 
um, of uh, what they believed to be Calvary. They did the same thing in Bethlehem. Uh, they had this ancient church, but we have to go down a, a tunnel into the basement, and you can look in this little cave there, and they say, this is where Jesus was born. And you know me when I talk about A-sites, B-sites, and C-sites, all three that I just mentioned are C-sites and probably D-sites at, at best. But you know, it gives the tourists something to look at. But when you... My point is I'm going around the, this, the whole Sea of Galilee right now. And what amazes me is this relatively unchanged. You have one major city. You have three kibbutzes. One's called Nafgenazar. The other one's called Engev. And the other one is called um, uh, Ma'agan. I knew it would come to me. And then they have one more coming up the other side. But besides that, you have all walking where you can walk on the sea. So when it says here, Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, one of my favorite places to give a Bible study is at at Tapthka, close to Capernaum, because you can walk right out uh, the beach and you can have people sit on on the stones and you can uh, tell them somewhere right in this area here is where Jesus called Peter, James, and John. They were professional fishermen. Okay, let's pick it up in verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers. First time he sees Simon, called Peter, <clears throat> Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fisher of men. I like that the Lord... Um, talk to them in terms that they could identify with. They understood catching fish. He said, from now on, guys, we're catching men. That's what we're out for. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers. So the first four disciples both have brothers. Now it's James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Brother John would be the only one who will not die a martyr's death. He wrote First, Second, and Third John, the Book of Revelation, and the Gospel of John. His brother um, James um, will be martyred, and also become. Everybody thinks that Peter. They point to Peter as being the leader and the head of the church in Jerusalem. That's not the case. If you go to Acts chapter 15, when they were debating what to do with these Gentiles that were getting saved, they had a big discussion. And, um, you know, what are we going to do with them? And everybody had a say. All, All the disciples thought what should be done. But it was James who stood up, not Peter, because James was the elder of the church in Jerusalem. And he was a said, the one that said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to write a letter to the Gentiles. And we're not going to put our Hebrew laws upon them, except things that Christians wouldn't do. You can't sleep around. No sexual immorality. Well, that's a given, but he put it in the letter. And um, he says, besides that, you know, um, 
We're not going to put any other restraints on you. Seeing that the Lord has given the Holy Spirit to Cornelius, and he wasn't Jewish, and he received it simply by believing by faith. So when we read here about, when we're talking about Peter and him being the first pope, so on and so forth, we have lots of problems. First of all, we're going to find that Peter had a mother who was sick. So he also had a mother-in-law, I should say, who was sick, which means Peter had a wife. And so here you had the first pope being married, and one of the conditions to being a priest or a nun or a pope or a bishop or a cardinal is taking uh, the vow of celibacy, which means um, no sexual relationships. You have to remain unmarried. And the problem with that is it's not biblical. And it's gotten the Catholic Church into many, many lawsuits because there's people in the ministry that have taken that vow that don't have the gift that the Apostle Paul had because he had the gift of being single. I don't think for a second that Paul wasn't married. Uh, He said he was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. In order to be a Pharisee, you had to be married. I think what happened is um, he came home from Damascus one day after meeting Jesus and when he told his wife um, that he is now a Christian, she said, you're a what? <laughs> and I believe that was it. I believe she went her way. It's not mentioned in the scriptures. But for a Pharisee not to be married, it, was just not, it wasn't thought of. So God gave him a special gift. And it was a gift of, of um, being able to restrain himself when it came to um, those natural um, affections that that men and women have. We're talking about in the last days, one of the false doctrines would, would be abstaining from meat and forbidding from marrying in, in the last days. Well, just till recently, the reason we have, why do we have fish fries on Friday night? Where did that come from? Well, it's a Catholic tradition. You can't eat meat, so you have to eat fish. And the other thing is, and forbidding to marry. So if you want to be in the priesthood, as far as Roman Catholic Church is concerned, you have to take the vow of celibacy. All right, we left it off with verse 21. And we find that James and John are saved, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Don't take lightly the fact of uh, leaving home being uh, not a difficult thing to do. I was talking to um, Phil Del Rey. You guys are going to love this guy. Uh, He's going to be doing... I'm going to introduce him to the fellowship here on a Sunday morning. Uh, And he's going to be doing our stake and study. Um, He's got a worldwide ministry, but in the early 80s he was responsible for being the biggest cocaine dealer in America, and he got busted. And they immediately threw him in jail, and for the next three years, all he did was read his Bible. And when he got out of prison, he just started sharing his testimony wherever he went, 
And um, we were like two peas in a pod. We started fellowshipping and found out we had so much in common. And um, because we're going to be on the trip going to um, the Grand Canyon and we're leaving a little bit early, I won't be able to be here for the stake and study. And so I thought, oh, I want to meet this guy. So I, I called him up and I said, listen, Phil, why don't you come on up and take a Sunday morning while I'm still here so we can get to know each other a little bit better. The fellowship will be able to hear you. We live stream all over the world. And uh, we'll have a great turnout when people hear just a little bit of your testimony. Because I just heard a little bit of it, and he was blowing my mind away with, with uh, the things that the Lord has taken him, taken him through. So anyway, um, he will be with us in April. I can't remember the exact date, but it'll be before the pastor's conference. All right, let's go back to verse 23. Now Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogue, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. Then his fame went throughout all of Syria. Now, when you get to the very northern part of Israel, you have the Golan Heights on one side is Israel. And you go over the Golan Heights, and immediately you're in Syria. And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he would heal them. Now, Let's go back and just imagine for a second that wherever he went, except we're going to find out in his own hometown, that uh, wherever he went, he was followed by by the masses. This is also a prophecy here. Um, verse 23 is Psalm 22:22, And last week's message was titled, remember I titled it, Possession or Oppression. And one of the main points that we wanted to answer is can a born-again Christian be demon-possessed? And the answer is absolutely no. And then we asked the question, can a born-again Christian be oppressed? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. And remember I took you to Second Corinthians 12, and Paul had just returned from heaven. <laughs> and um, it goes on to tell us that the Lord sent a messenger of Satan to buffer him and gave him a thorn in the flesh. And people try to explain, what, well, what was the thorn in the flesh? Well, it tells us it was a messenger or a demon that could oppress him but could not possess him. And Peter prayed about it. He said, Lord, I don't like this. I want, I want this gone. Three times. And after the third time, the Lord says, no, Paul, I want to keep you usable. If you come down from heaven and you start telling people that, gang, if you could have heard what I heard. But all he could say was, I just can't put it into human words. And he says, unless you talk about it too much, I'm going to keep you humble. And um, he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for in 
in your weakness is my strength. Paul says, praise the Lord. (laughs) That's all I need to know. The Lord talked to him, explained it to him. I get it. If I get big-headed, and it's going to be all about me, what happened to me, instead of your job, Paul, is to preach the gospel and stay humble. And if I can keep you humble, Paul, then I can still use you. But if you get full of pride, well, look what happened when you take that to an extreme. Who's the most, most proudful creature ever made? Lucifer. What happened to him? And that's what pride can do. The Bible says pride, what? Puffs up, right? And makes you cocky. And what does love do? Just the opposite. Keeps you humble. And um, said, sorry, Paul, you've seen too much. Too many revelations, too many miracles. They were taking your handkerchief. Remember we read on Sunday and just touched the handkerchief, Paul, and I'll just take it home. That's enough faith for me, for my wife to get healed of her disease. And miracles like that were happening all over the place. So let's not pass over verse 24 too quickly. I mean, the word got out pretty quick. And if, um, if you had a friend, and we'll read about that friend either this week or next week. We'll see how far we get. Um, and you, you know that Jesus is in town. The result is, verse 25, great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis. Decapolis is another name for ten cities. That would be on the east side of the goal of the Sea of Galilee, um, east of the Golan Heights, and from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. So that takes us to chapter 5. Matthew records the Sermon on the Mount. Um, um, This is going to be repeated in other places. It breaks up into about mm, four different places. Um... 1 through 16, the relationship of the subjects of the kingdom to to themselves. And verses 17 and 18, relationship um, as it relates to the kingdom. And and in chapter 6, relationship to the subject of the kingdom of God itself. And just so you get a feel for this, go to chapter 7 and let's read the last two verses so that you can see this as taking place at one time. So it says, so when Jesus had ended these sayings, what sayings? Well, 5, 6, and 7. These are the chapters that deal with the Sermon on the Mount. When he had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them having one having authority and not as the scribes. So let's go back to chapter 5. This throws a lot of people off because the last thing we read here is the multitudes are overwhelming. But then in verse 1, and seeing the multitudes, so the Lord saw the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. Now, here again, my thinking is... um, There's just one mountain that's unique of all the places around this part of the Sea of Galilee. It's called Mount Arbel. And um, it is a very, very special place. 
it says, he saw the multitudes and he went up on a mountain and when he had seated his disciples, he came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, I'm guilty of this, but yet when we read the scriptures carefully, he sees the multitudes that are all there, but he gets away with the disciples, and this is where we have the Sermon on the Mount. He's not speaking to the multitudes, he's speaking to the disciples. A lot of what he's going to say here, he is going to say to crowds later. But as far as five and six and seven is concerned, we have um, the people were astonished at, at his teaching. This also implies that he could have, in some part, part of this, had more than disciples um, involved here. But let's just dive in. And we'll see how far we get. Uh, verse 1 and 2, the multitudes, Verse, pick it up in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The word blessed here simply means, oh, how happy. Oh, how happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Let me give you one example. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, and each one had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to the other and said, Holy, 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 Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. That's what be Isaiah. And the posts of the doors were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And then he said, Woe is me, I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And um, then one of the angels flew to him having a live coal in his hand. And he touched the altar and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, he has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Poor in spirit is... It's something that you can't muster up. It's an awareness that comes in the same way the first time that Peter saw the miracle of the fish in the net. When he told the Lord, they aren't biting, I've been fishing all night, there's no fish out there. And we have this miracle of, they got to call in another boat to get the fish. And Peter fell flat on his face. He said, Lord, depart from me because... I'm a sinful man. Why did he say that? Because he was aware that he was in the presence of God. And the way that you can be poor in spirit, this is in a positive sense. You realize how you stack up to a holy living God. Now, if we compare ourselves to one another, we might not look that bad. But here, this idea of being poor in spirit is an awareness 
of how poor we really are in the eyes of our Lord. So blessed, oh happy, if you have that awareness. There's a lot of stuff that I see on TV today. There's, I watched a preacher yesterday. Unfortunately, I have to tell you, he was a Calvary Chapel pastor at a pastor's conference. It was nauseating. The arrogance was over the top. It was all about him. All I could see was him talking about what he thought. He finally opened the Bible somewhere along the way. And I thought, oh, Lord, don't let it happen. Not, not to us. Because the pastor was not poor in spirit. He was full of himself. And I just don't know any other way to say it than that. And I think that um, anybody can be um, lifted up because of being used by God. Who were we just talking about, Paul? What did God do to the Apostle Paul? He had to give him a thorn in the flesh. Why? Keep him usable. Keep him humble. Where it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. They really have an understanding of who the Lord is, and it's a humbling experience. Woe is me. I didn't realize I was, <laughs> I was that much of a sinner. I mean, the Bible tells us that, doesn't it? In me, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. Oh, come on, there must be something good there somewhere. No, that's not what it says. also says, my heart is deceitfully wicked of all things. Who can know it? How many times have you heard people say, oh, just follow your heart, you'll be okay. Right? My heart. Paul says, I don't even judge myself. He said, well, I won't do it. I'm not qualified because my flesh is so tricky. He just commits it. Chuck used to have a saying, do your best and commit the rest. How's that for a good Chuckism? No, just do your best, commit the rest, and and know that yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We're going to find as we go through here that the Lord was always looking for the underdog, and that's the one he went after. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Again, the opposite of of meekness is uh, a man's pride. And again, I do not believe you you can muster up humility. Meekness and humility, in my experience, only comes when I'm aware of the presence of the Lord. And I look at the world around me, and it's flashy, and it's neon and it's everything but that. And my Bible says, if you love the world, the love of the Father isn't in you. Boy, how politically incorrect is that? And yet the word blessed here is, oh, how happy. I got a guy coming over to trim part of my tree that I got to take off, or it might fall off, and if it does, it's going to take off a good good section of my house. I, I got to get it taken down before tornado season comes in. Found out he was a Christian. And um, and so I said, well, I'm a Christian. And he says, well, who are you? And I told him. When we ended up fellowshipping on the phone for about a half an hour. And um, he mentioned that he was on his way to um, Haiti to, to drill wells. Well, that extended the conversation for another half an hour. <laughs> And um, we, we, uh, one of the things that I said to him as we 
talked about the comparison between America and Haiti. I said the biggest difference that I've observed is that the Haitians are happier than Americans. And it's true. They are happier than we are. With the abundance of what we have, and they have nothing, yet they are happier than we are. So um, he laughed at that and said he observed the same thing, that it was true. Uh, Blessed are the meek, they'll they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm sick of the world, to be honest with you, because it's getting worse every day. And um, I'm glad that the Lord has a plan, that we're just pilgrims and strangers, and we're just passing through. Good place for an amen. Isn't that good to know? This isn't home. This is as bad as it's going to get. But for those who have the bigger barn syndrome, who are all about gathering it for now, the Lord says, you fool. Don't you know that your soul's required of you tonight and all this hard stuff you've been working for? You're just going to leave it behind. And um, i got to keep going here because we're not even going to get through chapter 5, much 6 or 7. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This falls under the category of um, uh, you reap what you sow. If you sow to the Spirit, you'll, you'll reap of the Spirit. If you show mercy to people, um, uh, you'll have mercy shown to you. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Uh, the, the thought of seeing the, the, the Father is just uh, mind-boggling to me. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Well, every one of the disciples, again, were martyred. The first 300 years of the church until Constantine changed everything around, it was a capital crime to be a Christian. And uh, that's what the Colosseums were were all about, Christian persecution, being thrown to lions, all that's a fact of history, Fox's Book of of Martyrs. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice. Be exceedingly glad. What? We're getting beat up? (laughs) Yeah, that's what it says. And so they persecuted the prophets just as they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus would say, which of the prophets didn't they kill? You know, I sent you Jeremiah. I sent you Isaiah. Um, Fox's Book of Martyrs believes that Isaiah was sawn in two. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. This changes now from verses uh, 1 through through 12 here are the blesseds and the Beatitudes and oh how happy. 13 through 16 are the uh, similitudes. It's more of a reference to how we should be. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its 
flavor, how shall you be seasoned? It's no good for anything. What does salt do? It's a preservative. It gives flavor. But if you lose that, basically you're, you're losing your ability to influence others. Now, it's our job. One, with your circle of friends, somebody's doing the influencing. It's always the way that it is. Question is, are you influencing or are you being influenced? And if you have a platform, I have a platform. My job here is to influence or to equip um, you with this book so that you can do the work of ministry. Um, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, there is a city in Galilee. It's called Safat. It's just straight north and a little west of Capernaum. But when Jesus was saying this, I'm sure he was speaking of Safat. Because at nighttime, if you're in Tiberias, that's what you see. It sticks out like a sore thumb. You can't hide it. Nor do they light a candle and, and put it under a basket, but under a lampstand, and it gives light to all the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Don't let people, um, uh, don't be a closet Christian. Be a Christian first and then whatever you are next, let them know. If they know one thing about you, only one thing. Well, all I know about him is he's a Christian. I don't know know what he does for a living. All I know is he's always talking about Jesus. And uh, this is an exhortation where uh, the Lord gives for you and I that um, uh, we are the ones that are supposed to be influencing our society, but unfortunately today our society is influencing our churches. Good place for an amen. Sad but true. But I'm not surprised because that's exactly what the Bible says was going to happen. In the last day, there will be a falling away, a departure from the faith. So I'm not surprised, but um, don't let it affect you. Stand your ground. And don't think that I've come to destroy the law of the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but fulfill. Now, this is important because um, when he says fulfill, that means he lived a perfect life. He was tempted in every area, never failed. And so the law, there's not just 10 commandments, there's 613. He kept them all. So he fulfilled it. None of us can, but he did. So he says, don't think that I've come to change the law. No, I've come to actually live it and live it out but I'm the only one who can live it out. For assuredly I say unto you, and this is important, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle. Now we're talking Hebrew here. And when you have uh, Hebrew letters, you have lines, but then you have a dot. And one dot can change the whole meaning of, of the word. Or a tittle would be like a comma. So the Lord is saying, um, Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. What does that mean? This is a book of prophecy. Nothing, nothing can stop when the Lord said 
this is going to happen. There's nothing that can stop it from happening. And as far as the Lord is concerned, who does not live in time, we live in time. He doesn't live in time. This is all over as far as God is concerned. And so as the Lord is looking at it to us, it's a done deal. So um, it's good, good to turn to the end of the Bible every once in a while and, and read the last chapter where your new home is and where you're going to be spending eternity because this is not our home. And Jesus uh, fulfills the law. And the rest of chapter 5, I was worried about getting through chapter 6. I'm not even going to get through chapter 5 because uh, I'm only up to verse 16 and I'm past my time. And it's the worship's team fault. You know, if they, if they wouldn't have, if they wouldn't have gone that extra song, you know, I probably would have been able to finish the whole thing. Just kidding. But guys, this is rich stuff and way too rich to do it quickly. So I want to chew on a good meal and, and digest what we have. Amen? So let's, the little bit that we got through tonight, there's a lot here. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you that your word tells us how to live. Thank you for telling us what you want of us. You want us to be lights. You want us to have the world know that we belong to you. And not to be ashamed of our walk with you, not to be a closet Christian, but to really let our light shine because you told us to. We thank you that you lived the perfect life, that you didn't come to destroy it, to fulfill it, but more importantly, because you lived the perfect life. On the cross, you took my sin, and everybody here and everybody who's watching live stream, you took their sin, and you replaced it with your righteousness. So as we just read in Hebrews, you were tempted in every way so that you can understand our weaknesses. And then you say, therefore, we are to come boldly before you. Heavenly Father, the only way myself or anybody here could ever come boldly before a holy living God like Isaiah did is knowing that our sins have been completely put away. But more importantly, you've given us your righteousness. We thank you for the boldness this gives us. And uh, Lord, as we make our way um, through the Beatitudes, again, we ask your blessing upon it. And um, we're just grateful, Lord, for the Bible study tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.